Welcome to The Back Shop, a podcast about the concepts and practice of media with a focus on its impact on society. Each week, we cover ideas about the theories, concepts, and history that have driven media development. We will also keep an eye on how new technologies are changing traditional ways of getting information at a time when democracy needs our engagement more than ever. This is The Back Shop. I'm your host, Jeremy Lata, an associate professor of journalism and communication at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And welcome back to episode nine. We are going to continue our uh, discussions about media framing. This is the last of the major theories that I will be talking about. We've covered agenda setting and gatekeeping, which are two of the major ones that describe um, the the uh, media making process and then the way in which the um, meaning gets transmitted to the public in terms of uh, its importance. Framing theory is the last one I wanted to cover um, in, a, in a big way because it gets at the kind of the heart of uh, some of the power you have in, in media making. That is, if gatekeeping allows uh, people to make choices about what um, gets covered and what doesn't in the news, um, framing is, is more of a way of taking a look at how that coverage happens and, and what that coverage looks like. Uh, so just to, to kind of define what that looks like then is uh, framing is a media-centered theory. And what that means is it's a, it's a theory that is couched in describing uh, things from the point of view of the media. And it explains how meaning is created uh, by the emphasis or exclusion of facts and details. And that is that um, the, the very language that, that journalists use uh, can, can shape the way certain terms can, can be seen. For example, when I was working at the Daily News in Los Angeles, I remember a couple times that we had discussions about um, how to label those who were doing what at the time was being called um, terrorist bombings. Um, the people who, um, you would occasionally get these stories on the wire, um, of people, uh, somewhere in the Middle East, uh, usually, but not always, who, um, would go into public places, um, buses, shops, and things like that with bombs strapped to their chest and detonate them. And, um, the, the term that we first started using in media, I noticed it a lot in the late nineties was suicide bomber. And, um, it's a, it's a term that has a very specific meaning to it. It does denote the act of bombing, but it also um, it, it links it to suicide, which is you know it has a different set of motivations attached to it than somebody who um, it, the, it was it was out to commit an act of murder or terrorism. And so, one of the debates we began having in the early part of the last decade was you know whether to to change the term to reflect more accurately what they were doing that they were not committing suicide they were committing homicide. Um, and so for a while, homicide bomber became a pretty um, popular term for media to use instead. Um, and the point is not really to take a position on which was the right one there, except for to say that the, the language does denote a different type of way of thinking about a particular act. And that is a person who goes into a public place and detonates a bomb and kills themselves and a bunch of other people. The way in which that that gets framed, uh, suicide might evoke a, a type of sympathy that that homicide would not, and so organizations uh, often find themselves really um, vocally, in some cases, debating you know the types of terminology they're going to use to refer to things because the news shapes the way we see things. Last decade, another example, um, we started to see a shift away from news organizations using global warming as a way to talk about. Um, um, the gradual pattern of, of the earth uh, 
getting hotter as a result of man-made carbon activity. Um, this was a, a change that was being pushed in part by the reframing of the terms um, by our politicians. Um, George W. Bush um, and his administration uh, was, was, was pretty active in field testing different types of terminology that would sound less threatening. And so one of the things that they stumbled upon in their research and focus grouping was climate change. And that is that climate change feels like something that is more of a natural process, a, a, a cyclical process that people would not necessarily see as alarming. And so they began to use the term climate change to refer to anything related to uh, man-made um, carbon-based warming. And the media tended to adopt that term over time. Uh, it's something that happened a little less, I, I would say, uh, uh, something something was being pushed for and, and something that got changed in the AP style book and they started using a different term overnight. Um, but it is, it is something that um, it, it shapes the way we see those things because global warming sounds a little more alarming. Um, we saw this debate last year um, and uh, after the election of, of President Trump here in the United States um, when there was a real debate about whether you use the term alt-right to refer to some of his followers. Um, the alt-right was... Um, famously, a group of people who uh, identify themselves as a, a, a different strain of, of conservatism in the United States. Um, they had uh, platforms all over the Internet, but they were famously, um, Breitbart.com uh, was referred to as the home of the alt-right. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that term, after the, after the wake of President Trump's election, we saw a lot of stories talking about this alt-right movement because the media was trying to do its job in explaining well, what happened. How did how did nobody see this coming, and yet it happened anyway? And so the alt right was being seen as one particular group of people who had a little more sway in terms of public sentiment than people thought they did. Um, others started to point out, though, that a lot of the people who were leaders of this alt right movement were self-identified white supremacists or had had ties to Nazis. Um, who had previously been associated with other groups and then cleaned up their public image and rebranded themselves effect effectively under the term alt-right. And so organizations then had to have um, these kind of conversations. Is alt-right the best term? Is it, is it effectually wiping away um, all the, the other types of ties these groups have to, to other, other unsavory organizations that would mean to do people serious harm? Um, and those AP style book came, came in and weighed, weighed in on this, this term at some point. They started to update their sections on white supremacy. The point of these examples is not, not really about you know, which was the correct way to go and which not. It's more that organizations tend to understand um, that the way in which they frame these, these uh, events in the news, either with language or uh, even over time with coverage, coverage decisions, um, they have an effect on the way the audience sees the news. You know, that if you keep reading stories about climate change, you're probably going to be a little less um, concerned or feeling like this is something that is, is something you need to fix now um, than if, you, if you're confronting terms like global warming every single day. Um, beyond just the mere individual acts of language and stories, you know, you take a look at um, some of the research that's been done, for example, on um, how women... Uh, uh, politicians are covered, you know, that they are more often than not uh, described in terms of what they were wearing um, when they uh, showed up for a major campaign announcement or an event or when they make a big announcement, they will often refer to them um, by, by, by fashion choices, essentially, in ways that men um, rough, uh, often are not. Um, and so it has an effect over time of, of describing um, women in very different ways and different language styles. 
Um, and so, you know, it raises the question of whether women can be covered equally in that regard. But I think even more of that, what happens when somebody deviates from that mold that's being created over time by language? One of the reasons we worry about framing and we think about framing intensely in newsrooms is because our words have power, that they, they have the ability to shape the perceptions of how um, we think about things. Go back to what we talked about with agenda setting um, in, the, in a previous episode. And we talked about how media um, shape the way um, we, we think in, in terms of what we think about. That is, that media don't tell us what to believe, but they do tell us the kinds of things um, that are important to think about. And we, we take our cues from coverage over time uh, as media basically telling us that this is something we should be paying attention to. So if you think about agenda setting on that level, the way I would think about framing is that framing um, shapes the way we, how, how we think about those things we're thinking about. And that is that if agenda setting's role is to describe what is important, um, framing can answer the why of that or the, the how, how we attach certain types of attributes and characteristics to, um, to things in the news. And that is that um, even even well-known politicians over time begin to take on, um, you know, different types of characteristics as a result of kind of a, a comp, an aggregate type of uh, media coverage over time. And you can do this by by, by thinking about, let's say, famous leaders in your in your own country. You know, here in the United States, you know, if I say President Obama, President Trump, President Bush, we can probably readily think of three or four or 10, uh, depending on how strongly you feel, attributes that we would attach to that person. All of those are media creations, um, unless we have direct interaction with that person. You know, that is that I have ways of thinking about those leaders um, that are the result of media language and media coverage over time. Now, if you add up gatekeeping and agenda setting and framing together, what you end up with is um, an important way of thinking about the process of media production. Um, we talked about the Laswell model, the who says what, by which channel, to whom, with what effect. That is the, the basic SMCR model that, um, that the, which traditionally has been the way we think about um, um, the news. That is, who says what, and it's the, the sender and, and uh, the message, by which channel, um, that's the medium, to whom, that's the receiver. So we've already busted apart that sender-to-receiver model. It was the real basic way of thinking about communication. We've added a couple layers in between. The says but by which channel focuses on the message and the medium in which it comes out. And then we, after that message has been sent and received, we ask with what effect. Gatekeeping and framing are really taking a look at the who says what by which channel. And that is that... Um, something makes it through the gates that even before the point of, of transmission um, being received by this the, by the receiver gatekeeping and framing both allow us to pick apart those messages then and ask questions about the message itself and the sender and their choices and after the person has already received that message then we ask with what effect that is what is the effect on the audience and that's where agenda setting comes in that it allows us to to think about the effects of that message, that messages don't get out there and, and exist in a way uh, that has no impact on people. It may not be a strong impact, um, but it is an impact. It, it, it changes the, the way in which we would tend to rate things. Now, one of the things that framing and agenda setting both have in common is that they, um, they are dealing with um, public 
perceptions of salience, and that is that even though framing is a, a media-centered theory, that we we do believe that um, fr- at the point of reception, that, that framing theory still has a powerful effect on audience in some way um, in terms of how we think about those things. So if agenda setting and, and framing then can be considered as um, different parts of the same process. In fact, there's a, there's a debate in my field about whether there's a, um, a framing and what's called the second level of agenda setting are basically the same thing. Um, agenda setting has, has, has less count three levels. Um, I don't really quite understand the third level, but the second level of agenda setting is called attribute agenda setting. And there, there's a really wide ranging debate in my field about whether second level agenda setting and framing are basically the same thing with different terminology. I'm not gonna wait in on that. But I do think it's worth worth seeing that, regardless of your stance on that, that there is still some sort of um, um, coexistence that they have together. Um, that getting people to think about things is not enough. Um, it's it's how you you shape the way we think about things. Now, the reason why I, I wanted to cover framing, I think, a little with a little more purpose, though, is because um, it again kind of points to the power media have, and that is that if you don't take your, your job and your duty sacredly uh, as, a, as a journalist. And that if you don't treat with care the language that you use, that if every word that you put on the page, every word you speak into the, uh, the microphone is not carefully measured and vetted for accuracy, fairness, um, but even more than that, that you're not using it to st- transmit stereotypes about things or people. Um, if you don't watch what you're saying. If you don't take that, that role really seriously, then you can do tremendous damage um, to, to people and, 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 um, and causes and ideas over time. In the 1990s, when I was in, when I was in college, um, I do remember one of the, probably one of the most famous um, framing incidents that, uh, that I still use in classes today, and that's the infamous uh, Time, Newsweek, um, Time versus Newsweek covers of the O.J. Simpson uh, arrest. Um, you can Google this for yourself. I'm going to post a, 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 a picture of it if you if you like on the show notes. That's on um, um, the website that hosts this particular podcast, backshotpodcast.com. And you can see the difference between the two. Um, but just to kind of explain to you in case you don't want to look this up, um, O.J. Simpson was arraigned uh, for the double murder that he was eventually charged and convicted with. Um, I'm sorry, acquitted for, excuse me. Um, and uh, he... Um, after the infamous uh, car chase down the LA freeway, he was he was picked up and he was he was booked um, uh, in 1994. And so the the uh, the jail that booked him took a mugshot, which is fairly common. And, and as was the custom in that particular time, um, the the mugshot was made widely available to media. Um, these don't. This doesn't happen as much as it used to, and I think it's probably good in some ways because I think that the mugshot does tend to frame um, uh, people accused of crimes in ways that that can uh, prejudice the way the public thinks about the person and, and whether they were guilty or not. Um, but in this case, the, the the it was a high profile case, and so they they took this mugshot picture and they they distributed it to media, and media used it in a lot of different ways in newspapers. They put it up on television and so forth. Um, the controversy I'm referring to, to though, is um, what happened with the two of the three major news weekly magazines here in the United States, um, Newsweek and Time. Newsweek um, ran a picture of him on the cover, 
um, his picture um, looking dead into the camera, and it had a big headline in red that said Trail of Blood. Time took the same exact shot, and it was an American tragedy. Um, and now by itself, that's kind of interesting, the, the, the difference between the two, that Newsweek is invoking a type of language. If you're not looking at this cover right now, just think about the words, Trail of Blood versus an American Tragedy, and how ambiguous the, the second one is. Um, that it's, um, you know, is it is it a tragedy that the murders were committed? Is it a tragedy of justice that he was arrested for it and nobody really knows? Um, there's, there's some ambiguity in the language if you're not following the case really carefully. Trail of Blood is much more right under his picture uh, that... They're, they're pretty much pinning the label of guilt on him. But the words aside, and the words are an important piece that you look at here, but um, the other thing that these covers differ in is that Time did something really controversial with the photo, which is they darkened it. Um, they darkened the edges. They did a, the kind of effect you see sometimes where you're, you're just kind of adding darker at the corners and the sides and, and, and blowing out the white contrast in the background to kind of show like a, a light and dark contrast. But then they also darkened his skin a great deal um, where he went from uh, the, the picture. If you, if you look at these uh, online, you'll see that his, he's much more of a hazel kind of color uh, in, in, the, in the Newsweek photo. And in time, he is dark, dark black. And the criticism was, of course, that they had to up his blackness. Now, this is, remember, if you if you know some of the details about this case, this is even more complicated by the fact that um, this was a case of two white victims um, who were were um, killed in this in this in these uh, in the murder. And so, um, the 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 idea that they would take in, in a, something that's already um, fraught with all kinds of uh, racial overtones anyway in this in the, you know the, the, the killing of two white people, a black man arrested for it and then he's not black enough for the cover of Time magazine they had to go back they went back in and doctored it. Now I've heard I've heard them talk about this process and how what been on the scenes of time and they were not trying to make him more black. Um, they you know in the sense of the, the way they explain it is like no, we weren't trying to say oh he's, he's not black enough to have committed this crime we're going to make him more black and play into those horrible racial stereotypes even worse. But instead what they were doing was a Photoshop effect where they were trying to focus in on the darkness of the event itself. And then, you know, they've of course did have somebody behind the scenes who could be their vice president of common sense and put a check on that and say, wait a second here. Um, you're darkening this photo, but you're darkening a black man who, you know, if you know anything about um, coverage of race and media as it pertains to crime, that black men are much more likely to be covered as perpetrators of crime than anybody else. Um, and this has been something that's been documented by research oh, for decades now at this point. So there are already problematic race frames going on in the background, just both in terms of the, the news event itself, but also the sea of media coverage around crime in America. Um, and then they take this photo and they, they darken his skin. And so there was a, um, a very serious blowback to this, this, uh, this coverage. Now, the reason I, I, I mentioned this in, in context of framing is because I think this is important to, to note when, you, when you're looking at media coverage in aggregate, and that is that, that the O.J. Simpson Time magazine cover is a, a, a blip in time. is something that happened, and there are uh, ways that people react to it. But I think it's important to remember that the ways people react to it are, are in some ways dictated to by past media coverage. And that is that you take all of that and aggregate, you kind of piece it together and they form a kind of narrative over time. And so what happens when this gets connected to a much larger problem that happens in media where 
um, you know, black men are not only more likely to be covered as as um, as perpetrators of crime, but they're less likely to be covered as pe- people with positions of authority or power. Um, we know that this happens with women, for example. Women are about one eighth as likely to be portrayed uh, for as being people like heads of organizations or CEOs compared to men. Um, and so it's it, there are issues of race and sex that tend to enter into media coverage over time. And it becomes an issue of representation. So framing framing is a way of looking at some of that problem that we could say, okay, well, if we tend to only do negative news around certain types of groups of people, or if um, women are only portrayed as people who are help helpers and supporters to men in culture, then we are we are largely in aggregate framing them in ways that are problematic and not not something that um, you know uh, is in line with the, the kind of things that maybe our, our news organization wants to, to deal with. So this is, this is kind of the way that news organizations often do and should be thinking about these questions. And uh, to the degree that they're doing this, that's how you can tell uh, an organization that's being thoughtful about it. It doesn't always go this way. News organizations make mistakes, and they are going to do things that... Um, Violate their own sensibilities and the, their own even their own values in some cases. They, they, some of these um, these framing effects are are being the result of choices that are kind of made in automated ways or systemic ways in the background without a lot of active thought to them. So one of the things that I would say and I tell my students is that you know if you go into the media business you have to be aware of your power. You have to be aware of the choices you make and, and the the kinds of things you can communicate um, subtly without really any kind of intention. Um, and and the, that's the reason why we talk about framing theory. So that's what we will that's what we'll leave it today. Um, next time we're going to cover a couple smaller um, media theories um, and talk about the transmission model. I think in a little more detail, and then then uh, we're going to wrap up the theory section of this this pro- set of podcast episodes by talking about theories of the press and and the and more specifically theories about. What does a media maker role look like compared to, uh, to institutions such as government? So that's it, and I will see you next time. The Backshop is a non-commercial podcast recorded and produced by Jeremy Latat at Lehigh University. Special thanks to Kaseki, whose music was used for this podcast and made available via Gemendo with a Creative Commons license. Thank you.